Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today's episode, we're going to be talking about Dr. David Owen Filson's uh, dissertation, A Fountainhead of Misunderstanding, J. Oliver Buswell, Cornelius Van Til, and the Context and Contours of an Apologetic Debate. Uh, this is kind of a part two of our first one where we talked all about Van Til and presuppositionalism and J. Oliver Buswell and his context and what beef he had with Van Til. Uh, and it's really illuminating, even though this was taking place back in like the 50s and 60s, 40s even. Um, but it's illuminating for us today because a lot of these objections continue to be raised against presuppositionalism and Van Til in particular. So we're going to continue on with paradox, creation, and common ground. We'll see if we get there because uh, Dr. Filson is the man and we go all over the place. We, we talk about bodybuilding and, and all sorts of other stuff too. So we'll see. Um, but before we jump in, just want to thank the Patreon patrons, uh, the supporters. You guys can find the link in the description. If you've benefited from the show, please consider becoming a Patreon patron. Uh, another way is to subscribe on YouTube and hit the notification bell so you can see all the new episodes as they come out. And then the third way is to go to Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star review and uh, leave me a comment as well. All that will help the algorithms for the podcast version of the episode. That'd be huge. Really appreciate you guys. Thanks for everything that you're doing. Like I've said in previous episodes, I'd love to do this full time and just travel the country, travel the world, bringing you guys the best uh, podcast episodes that I can make. So the more people supporting that, the better ones we can make. So without further ado, let's bring in uh, Dr. Filson. David, thanks so much for coming on the podcast again, man. This is awesome. My pleasure. So good to be with you. Yeah. So last time we talked about lifting and Gaston and all sorts of fun stuff before we got in. Uh, so people have to listen to that one. It's it's really good. But uh, I, I thought before we, we get into the three specific things we're going to talk about, I thought maybe you could give us a brief sketch of like, what, what do we mean by presuppositionalism? Uh, what What is precept? Yeah. Well, that was, of course, one of the areas where Buswell... Um, who coined the phrase or coined the term presuppositionalism? He got the phrase, got the term from Alan McRae, who said that what Van Til was practicing was a was a presuppositionism, mm. and so uh, Buswell called it presuppositionalism, which was not unfamiliar nomenclature for you know idealism, uh, German and British idealism, of course. But he said that that's what Van Til was doing. Now, of course, he did not uh, he did not describe Van Til's method as presuppositionalism uh, in a complementary way. He was very critical of that. What was interesting, though, was that uh, Buswell didn't even have a good boilerplate idealistic understanding of what presuppositionalism or what a presupposition would be Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of transcendent accounting for transcendent basis for knowledge. Uh, Buswell had a more, uh, how would I say it, almost a... um, I don't know. It was kind of a, a, a reading take on presupposition. And by that, he meant we hold it that a person's presuppositions are those things that they hold to having tested them by good and sufficient reason. Mm-hmm. And so um, even even his understanding of presupposition was basically we all have our preconceived notions and hopefully we have tested them by reason or sense experience or some other other thing. And we can hold to them as you know, as reliable. So even even when he described presupposition or presuppositionalism and foisted that upon Van Til, he didn't have Van Til's understanding of presuppositionalism, which mm. that's not really something Van Til used, though he had to essentially take that on because by the, uh, the time he writes presuppositionalism and presuppositionalism continued in the 48 and 49 issues of the Bible Today, which was the magazine that Buswell edited and and uh, Van Til contributed to that magazine, the term was there. He, he would speak more in terms of a transcendental argument, et cetera, but by uh, a presuppositional apologetic or a presuppositional uh, epistemology, we're, we're talking about those things which make the, the 
requisite atmosphere for knowing, if I can say it that way, uh, possible, or that which can account for reality as we experience it and the requisites of intelligibility, such as the laws of logic, induction upon which science depends, deduction upon which math depends, normativity of nature upon which science depends, objectivity and predication, um, morality, personhood, etc. And so uh, it's not just the fact that we all have preconceived notions. Of course, we all know that. Everyone has preconceived notions. Van Til's understanding or, or a presuppositional apologist understanding of presuppositionalism is far more than that. It's not just that we all have preconceived notions. It's what, what makes the very concept of conception possible. Yeah. What makes, what makes uh, intelligibility um, possible? How can you even account for intelligibility? Yeah, man, that that's really good. I, that's such a good uh, clarification. So a lot of people will think, and some people online haven't done a great job who uh, self-professed uh, presuppositionalists who say, "Well, yeah. I'm, I'm presupposing the truth of Christianity as if it's like an active choice. This is I'm taking this on, and then I'm going to go and demonstrate it." And almost axiomatic in, in that sense, right? And it's like that's more kind of Gordon Clark. That's maybe what yeah. Francis Schaeffer had in mind, right? But, but Van Til's was more like exactly what you said. It's a it's an objective presupposition, not just a subjective. I chose this presupposition, but what must be true given that we can have knowledge and knowledge of moral facts and mm-hmm. an intelligible universe at all. Oh, all those things are presupposed, uh, presupposed the ontological Trinity is, as Van Til would say that that's the, the groundwork, the, the bedrock, the uh, foundation, concrete, the concrete universal. Exactly. Yeah. The concrete. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. So I, I think that's so helpful to understand that it's not at least Vantillian presuppositionalism is not an active choice saying, look, I'll just presuppose this and blah, blah, blah. It's no, like if you and I are able to talk at all, both of us are standing on some presuppositions that must be the case. And I want to show you that those presuppositions are actually God. It's the ontological Trinity. Right. Exactly. Okay. So we, so we got some, some clarity there. Uh, In our last episode, we, man, it was so good. We got to listen. I want to go listen to it again too. But we we ended before we got to like paradox and um, and Van Til's notion of paradox creation and and common ground. So I thought maybe we could just jump in with with Van Til's notion of paradox and why Buswell had such a problem with it. Well, Buswell had a problem with uh, Van Til's understanding of, of paradox. Of course, for for Van Til, paradox is not contradiction, um, but the you know it it really is grounded in. Uh, things like, you know, God being the concrete universal that uh, in him, you know, the, the problem of the one and the many is solved, unity and diversity, etc. cetera. Uh, Buswell, of course, was always keenly sensitive to any and all forms of idealism, quasi-idealism. He was worried about pantheism. And he recognized that, uh, that Van Til was a, quote, zealous anti-Bardian Yet he believes that Van Til was basically guilty of the same, um, the same denial uh, of consistency as Bart, and that that for him paradox is contradictory. And I think there's an, yet another example of not only did he not understand Van Til's understanding of presuppositionalism or presupposition, but he totally missed Van Til's critique of Bart because. It's one thing to say, I, I recognize he's a zealous anti-Bardianism, and then at the same time, paint him with the same brush as, uh, as Bart. And so for Buswell, he viewed paradox essentially as contradiction and said that, that Van Til was quite content with, with contradiction and nothing had been further from, uh, further from the truth. He, um, you know, he, he believed that Van Til was essentially Hegelian, you know, that, that famous passage where he says, you know, I, you know, I have great, great respect for you, but look at your feet. You have tracked in the Hegelian mud. <laughs> and uh, this is particular with regard to Van Til's understanding of the, of the Trinity. It's an interesting, um, uh, uh, interesting statement here that, uh, that I'll, I'll read if, if I can. This is um, a thing that, that Buswell jumped on. Van Til says, whereas for most of us, paradox is a misfortune something to be carefully studied and resolved so that the apparent contradiction will be seen clearly to be no contradiction. For Dr. Ventil, on the other hand, there are certain specific deeply established paradoxes which must form a part of theology. 
He says to hold to this position, the doctrine of the Trinity, requires us to say that while we shun as poison the idea of the really contradictory, we embrace with passion the idea of the apparent, the apparently contradictory. It is through the latter alone that we can reject the former. If it is the self-contained ontological trinity that we need for the rationality of our interpretation of life, it is the same ontological trinity that requires us to hold to the apparently contradictory. This ontological trinity is, as the larger catechism, the Westminster Standards puts it, incomprehensible. Um, so Van Til is dealing with a couple of things there. Number one, finitum non capox infinitum. Yep. Um, if something appears uh, contradictory um, within God's revelation, you know, we, we have to humble ourselves and, and accept the mysterious. And, and that's just, that's Van Til being Calvinistic, you know, uh, Calvin says a good theologian, when God has been pleased to, to cease reveal, to close his mouth and revealing himself, the, the true theologian puts his hand over his mouth and lives with the mystery, or we might say in Van Tilian language, the, the, the paradox. Um, but this ties into, of course, Buswell's concern, uh, among others, you know, in the fifties, uh, there were, there were others who were, uh, Jesse DeBoer and others who were very concerned that Van Til had become a wholesale, uh, idealist largely because he used idealist nomenclature yeah. in his, uh, in his program, but he wasn't, you know, like say concrete, concrete universal, the, the idea in idealism of the concrete universal being this kind of, uh, historical, uh, amalgam, um, how, how to say it, the, the idea that, that the, uh, that the absolute or the concrete universal in, in Hegelian terms um, is, is this historical amalgam wherein um, the, the absolute needs the, the, the finite particulars in order to arrive at this kind of omega point mm-hmm. of, of realization um, you know, it sounds, it sounds of, like that's where that's where like Alfred North uh, Whitehead got process theology from. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, for sure. And um, you know, Bart, of course, only had all Bart had to do, as you know, was uh, was take that idealist concept, and you have the the absolute and the particulars coming together in the Christ event, mm-hmm. uh, which you know redefines election. Um, that that you know that that God and man uh, actualize actually, and so so that was an application of that kind of historical the, the absolute you know sort of realizing itself through the amalgam of, of the particulars. Yeah. And Van Til says, of course, no, there there is a concrete universal, but it's not found in some Hegelian historical process, or you know what would later be as you apply it to the state, kind of a Marxist historical process so that's not something that that Mantel actually took up but but a hegelian historical process you don't need to look for a process like that but to the self-contained um absolutely personal triune god mm-hmm. in other words there there is no there is no aspect or no yeah aspect of god there is n- nothing of god that is still awaiting some kind of omega point or arrival. Mm-hmm. And so when he would speak of, you know, the triune God as a concrete universal, that was not as Buswell might've said, okay, you're, you're trafficking here in contradiction and you're veering off the course of Christian orthodoxy. That was not a concession to idealism. It, it was, it was his way of using idealist nomenclature to critique idealism. Yeah. Yeah. And what what I like too is he's contextualizing because Van Til is also uh, an evangelist. Like he wanted to reach the idealist and saying, "Hey, look, I know you guys have this this notion of concrete universal. The concrete universal only makes sense over here. Come on over to this side, uh, and it, the concrete universal has to be self contained. It has to be asse, as theologians say. Yeah, and, uh, and otherwise we can't make sense of of the world that he created. He's not a abstract universal. He's concrete." He is a person. He is a he's an absolute person, and all those words meant so much. Absolute personality from, you know, Boston personalists and and all sorts of stuff. It's fantastic, man. I love that. Yeah, it really is, and that, and that's something that I think Buswell failed to understand that for God to be absolute personality uh, or absolutely personal, absolute meaning that he is 
infinite, immutable, self-contained. He is not subject to a historical process of becoming. <laughs> he is absolute, um, eternal, uh, aseity, right? And that, but but he's also absolute personality, meaning uh, he thinks, speaks, reveals, acts, and um, that is for. I mean that that forms then the Principium Ascendi of Vantilian epistemology. Mm-hmm. The Principium Ascendi is the Triune God of the Bible. Of course, the Principium Cognoscendi Externum is the is the Bible of the Triune God. Mm-hmm. So this absolute person, this absolutely personal God is the starting point ascendi, the principium ascendi. And because he is absolutely personal, he can communicate and reveal, which is what he's done in general and special revelation, both of which are uh, are sufficient for what they are tasked to do. You know, we, we, we realize that, that special revelation is because that General, general revelation is not sufficient to reveal certain things about God as Savior, but insofar as it is tasked, general revelation is sufficient to reveal God as creator, uh, judge, etc. And so that language of absolute personality is really important to uh, the idea of God as concrete, universal. It's very important to his theology proper, and uh, really everything flows from that. I mean, if we're going to think about requisites for intelligibility— yeah. Um, and our knowledge being analogous knowledge or icon knowledge, um, of course, that ties into Ventil's idea that there are no brute facts, meaning that not just there are no uninterpreted facts, but that there are there's no phenomenon that does not already have its being as a created entity, say a rock or a tree or whatever, as well as its definition given to it by God. That's what he means by no brute facts. And so all of that is necessary for... Uh, for this epistemological uh, program and an epistemological accounting for intelligibility. Yeah, dude, amen. I, I always get excited about uh, his no brute facts uh, doctrine or, or thesis. I, I wonder, I don't know if Van Til's ever talked about this, but I wonder, is God a brute fact? Uh, God's existence, the self-contained, uh, you know, uh, ontological trinity, is God's, because he he doesn't like define himself he didn't he didn't create himself obviously and he doesn't well i don't know i I guess does he interpret himself is he um it it makes sense if he is the one brute fact okay fine one brute fact and the rest fall out from that but what what do you make of that do you think god's existence is a a brute fact well i think we have to be be careful there yeah vagil didn't use that language i think it would be Better to say that because of God as being the concrete universal or absolute personality, he is thereby the creator and interpreter of all that he creates. Mm-hmm. Thereby, there are no brute facts. And so in those sense, you know, phenomenon is a created thing and God is not a created phenomen- phenomenon, right? Yeah, yeah. That said, that said, um, God is, neither is God uninterpreted. By himself, yeah, he has exhaustive self awareness, exhaustive self knowledge, and as Edwards would say, that exhaustive self knowledge is how we account for the eternal generation of the Son or the Logos, the Logos of God. And this is Edwardsian language: is the eternal self self awareness, self understanding of of God. And so, um, God is not up for. It's not up for debate as to how God is defined. So in that sense, God is not uninterpreted, but there's no higher standard of interpretation than God himself. He is the epistemological starting point for the intelligibility of interpretation, and he is the uh, the archetypal basis of our, we might say, ectypal knowledge. Mm-hmm. So he is the archetypal basis uh, for our analogous knowledge of what he has created and what he has as in, in interpreted and, and given its meaning. And so yeah, you know, Ventil doesn't refer to God as a brute fact, but rather as absolute being, absolute personality. But he 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 would say um that God is not uninterpreted. He is he is 
he is his own interpretation. And I yeah. think, you know, this ties into Exodus three. I am that I am. God mm-hmm. is uh, eternally self-aware and uh, eternally um, exhaustively self-knowing. So the phrase finitum non capax infinitum, yeah. the finite cannot comprehend the infinite, but the infinite certainly and absolutely must comprehend the infinite yeah. in order for there to be the possibility of true revelation of himself, right? Mm, yeah. that's uh, I love that phrase. I grabbed that from your dissertation as well. Uh, finitum or finitum non capax infinitum. The, the finite cannot comprehend the infinite. And I, I was uh, I was thinking about Edwards too, because he does a lot. And, and you're uh, up to date on, on Edwards yourself as well. But Edwards mm-hmm. has a has a emphasis on infinity and how, you know, the, the, the infinite creature, if he were infinite, uh, though he's finite, if he were infinite, he would be God. So there's no way that you could, only God is infinite. So that that's an important point, uh, I thought, from, from Edwards and from Van Til about paradox. Uh, Gordon Clark um, is re- reportedly said, you know, uh, a, a paradox is Charlie Horse between the ears. Um, <laughs> yeah, that can yeah. be like massaged with the, the muscle of reason or the masseuse of reason yeah. or something. Um, our paradoxes, uh, so, so Buswell was upset because Van Til prioritized uh certain paradoxes so they're they're bedrock that you have to have them in theology um do you will we ever get to the point where we can uh massage those paradoxes like is this a creator creature um Mm -hmm. facet of the creature creator creature distinction or is this something that um is just not going to make sense to us this side of eternity but then you know once we once all things have been revealed to us maybe we can resolve some of these paradoxes yeah, I think I think uh, well as First John three one to three, uh, behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that so we should be called the children of God. The reason the world does not know us does not know Him. What we shall be has not yet been revealed, but we know this that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Now, of course, this ties into say Edwards, we live from seventeen or three to to fifty eight, his idea of the beatific vision, right, and uh, that there will be a transformational knowing, a knowing of Christ soul to soul, as it were, mm-hmm. that will be a transformational knowledge. And yet we will always be the creaturely. And so um, e- even even in our glorified state and being made like Christ and the, the noetic effects of sin no longer being a restraint uh, for us epistemologically, we will still be the creaturely. And while we will have, as Edward says, all eternity to grow in blessedness and happiness in the knowledge of the things of God, which is an incredible thing for theology nerds like us now. <laughs> Right. Uh, you know, as Paul says, we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. I mean, there's going to be such, such expansive capacity and all eternity to grow in the knowledge of God. And yet we will never exhaustively know the infinite because we will never be infinite, though we will live for eternity. We will never be, as if I say it this way, possessed of or characterized by infinity. Mm-hmm. So we will always be the creaturely. And so, yeah, I think there. That, that the the finitum non capax infinitum will always be a reality. That doesn't mean that the finite cannot apprehend the infinite. So while we cannot have comprehensive knowledge, we have apprehensive knowledge of the infinite. By apprehensive, we don't mean like hesitant, like I'm apprehensive of this, but to yeah. apprehend, you know, for instance, um, I, I'm always watching, like I geek out watching snake videos. There's this guy in Africa, Dingo Dinkleman, who, you know, keep snakes and he does all these ed- educational vid- videos with snakes and so forth. And, um, you know, like if I see like a, a Texas rat snake in our neighborhood, I'll always catch it and play with it. And so I, I have an apprehensive knowledge, you know, a, a degree of knowledge, I, but I don't have comprehensive knowledge or expert knowledge. But even when we say someone has expert knowledge, they have, they are an expert in their field. They do not have infinite knowledge of that because the only being the only person who has uh, infinite knowledge is one, the one who has the capacity for infinite knowledge, which would require infinity of that being or that person. And then the person who is, of course, um, the, the creator of all that is, which is, which is God himself. And so uh, knowledge is, uh, I mean, we're talking about epistemology here, but but uh, the the difference between God's knowing and our knowing, while it is 
uh, essential that we maintain that difference between the creator creature for the sake that that essential binary mm-hmm. for between the creator creature, not just so that we maintain a proper doctrine of God and a proper anthropology, but apart from it, we don't even have a basis for epistemology because our knowing of anything is analogous to God's knowing of something not equal to, yeah. in other words, we don't know two plus two equals four in exactly the same way that God does. We know it as a, a mirror or a reflection or an image of his knowledge of that. There is more to two plus two equals four that, that, that God knows by virtue of being uh, the basis of say in this case, deductive reasoning than we'll ever know. Yeah. And that's why, that's why, you know, we talked about presupposition a minute ago. That's why the triune God of the Bible as our principium ascendi is essential for uh, uh, essential requisite for intelligibility. Yeah, man. Amen to that as well. And that's why um, a lot of people have a hard time with analogical knowledge. And I don't know why they do. It seems like our, our forefathers did not have such a, a hard time with analogical knowledge. I, uh, if, God has a, a quantitatively different amount of knowledge than I do, but also quality, qualitatively yeah. and quantitatively. He knows in a different manner, and he knows much more than me. Okay, most people have the problem with the qualitative because they say, well, if 2 plus 2 equals 4 means something different for God, then uh, you know how do we know? And we fall into skepticism. And you say, well, analogical knowledge means that we both, just like analogical language, analogical language means we can speak literally of something, even though not univocally about something. And so mm-hmm. analogical knowledge likely, or likewise follows it. We can know 2 plus 2 equals 4. God can know 2 plus 2 equals 4. Yet God knows more about 2 plus 2 equals 4. And he knows it in a different way, being that he is the ground of 2 plus 2 equals 4, whereas I'm his image bearer who came along after and discovered that or was taught that and put that up here. Yeah, you, that's well said. It really gets down to this, you know, for for um, uh, for Ventil, you know, univocal thinking uh, rather than analogous knowledge really strikes at the heart of the creator-creature distinction because, as you said, God knows not just quantitatively but qualitatively, and he gets down to this. He knows – it's not that, that 2 plus 2 equals 4 means something different to him than it means to us that, that we think 2 plus 2 equals 4 – he really knows two plus two equals five, and we're in darkness on it. No, no, no. It's not that it means something different, but um, he is the ground of its meaning to begin with, and we are not. That alone ought to stop us in our tracks and go, okay, wait a second. I know two plus two equals four, and God knows two plus two equals four, but I'm not the ground of two plus two equals four the way that he is the ground of two plus two equals four. It's just possible that my knowledge of two plus two equals four is not autonomous as if I am the divine ground uh, of of uh, of two plus two equals four, or as if as if the knowledge of two plus two equals four is just some neutral uh, base of knowledge that that you know God has to arrive at and we arrive at and we can all agree on it. Mm-hmm. The the binary of the of the creator creature distinction is is crucial, and I, and I use that language of binary because binary is so under attack today. You know, we're trying to do away with all kinds of binaries and. And and I, I really I really believe you know I mean I'm getting a little bit off on a rabbit trail here but when you look at some of the things that are going on um, metaphysically today be it issues of uh, of ethnicity gender etc and some of the metaphysical conclusions that are being drawn um, I, I think what ultimately is is the goal here is not denying the binary between male and female or between this ethnicity and that is an ethnicity or even the binary between good and evil. I think the binary under ultimate attack is the creator creature distinction. Yeah. And I think that's that's absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. And so we, we see that the importance of the creator creature distinction, what we've been talking about for the last few minutes heavily as it relates to knowledge and, and epistemology, but it's, it's everything, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Real quick. Can you go back over um, the uh, cognoscendi, the, yeah, I, mean, I just missed it. I just lost it. Yeah, but the the three of yeah. them. There's, um, yeah, our principium cognoscendi externum. Yeah. So our starting point for knowing external to us is the Bible of the Triune God, mm-hmm. His self revelation, and His authoritative inspired Word. Our principium ascendi, or the starting point of being, is the Triune God of the Bible. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. So our our um, Principium Ascendi, um, th- that's God, uh, the ontological Trinity, and the pr- Principium mm-hmm. uh, Cognoscendi, and so think of cognition of knowledge, technology. Externum is the the word. It's it's external to us. I I, I like to think of mm-hmm. it that way. And then yeah. the uh, principium cognoscendi internal is in internum is uh, the the Holy Spirit, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, and so he's sort of a... applying the the externum internal to us and causing us to believe mm-hmm. uh, that it's truth. It's truth. That's that's First Corinthians one and two. The uh, I mean, you have really in First Corinthians one and two the biblical basis for Evangelian epistemology, yeah. which is the the necessity of regeneration. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe, I believe the doctrine of regeneration is um, crucial. I mean, from a homiletics perspective, you see in say in the, in the preaching of David Martin Lloyd Jones this real heavy emphasis on regeneration. But also, say in Edwards and his uh, doctrine of the new sense of the heart, the place of regeneration is 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 crucial. And so, for uh, Van Til, for Van Til, and I think about I think about Lloyd Jones and Van Til because I have back here behind me uh, this one of my favorite pictures. Oh yeah, of, that's a great uh, one. Yeah, and that a great one. Yeah. Of uh, uh, who knows what they're laughing about? A lot of memes could be built <laughs> right. off of this, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> but so anyway. Um, the, the place of regeneration, First Corinthians one and two, and um, us having, as Paul says, the mind of Christ now. Mm-hmm. And why do we have the mind of Christ? Because we are indwelt by the Spirit of Christ, and so that has, you know, regeneration has crucial implications for our epistemology. Yeah. So this is a really good transition. So um, over uh, creation, which I think we can transition smoothly into, but into common ground because someone will hear, um, you know, you have to be regenerated to, to know stuff. And for those who are unfamiliar with regeneration, just gen- think of generate, you know, being born and then regenerate born again. And so um, it sounds like, well, and this is a charge that I think, I don't know if Boswell brought it against uh, Van Til, but, but lots of people, uh, critics of Van Til say, well, you're saying that the unbeliever can't know anything. Um, so what do we make with this strong sense, I think, biblical sense of regeneration and uh, principium, uh, ascendi, ascend, uh, you know, cognoscendi, externum and internum? What do we make of, of unbelievers, non-believers knowing things? Yeah, so uh, far from the unbeliever not being able to to know anything, Van Til would say, not just is he capable of knowing, he he knows God, and not just God in some generic kind of, you know, general or generic theistic being sense. The unbeliever knows the triune God unavoidably, inescapably, because he is created in the image of, of the triune God. Mm-hmm. Now he suppresses Romans one eighteen to thirty two. Of course, he suppresses uh, that uh, that knowledge out of a uh, out of a commitment to to wickedness. But the unbeliever knows the true God, and yet Van Hook could say he doesn't know he doesn't know uh, God. And so what he means by that is he does not acknowledge God for who he is, but he unavoidably, inescapably, like he can run, but you can't hide. Yeah. Epistemologically, he knows who God is, and it's that very point that that um, you know nullifies Buswell and and a host of others. I mean, this is a common this is a common uh, trope about Van Til uh, mm-hmm. is that he denies common ground or he denies a point of contact, yeah. and it's actually Van Til who uh, who saves the single legitimate point of contact between the believer and the unbeliever. Namely, the Imago Dei. Yeah. Uh, it's because the Imago Dei, because man is created in the image of the triune God, that not just is a point of contact possible, the point of contact is unavoidable. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, is, it is indeed very, very real. Uh, what, what Van Til is doing, though, is saying the point of contact is not this supposed neutral starting ground, and you appeal to autonomous reason, you practice what he called blockhouse methodology, assuming autonomous reason, and then sort of piling up like Legos, a cumulative case for the, say, the high probability of the existence of a supreme being. No, for, uh, for you know, for Van Til, uh, Christianity is the only reasonable position to hold. And that is because 
man is created in the image of of the logos himself yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, that that's so helpful to think through um it is a really just it's a biblical picture of of humanity and and i think you're right that it does save the yeah. the, the common ground because you're saying hey look i i'm not saying that you're stupid you're probably smarter than me I'm not saying that you don't know anything. I think you probably know a lot. But the reason that you you are able to think, um, the reason that the world is intelligible to you and that you can store up knowledge is because you're made in the image of the God who created the world and who sustains the world. And so all when I affirm that you are smart and that you know stuff and that you're really competent, I'm also saying that's because of the God who you're denying with all of the knowledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a it's an incredibly dignifying hmm. position if we communicate it sensitively and with with a little bit of emotional, you know, IQ. Hmm. Um, it's an incredibly dignifying way of looking at, you know, our unbelieving friends and and loved ones and so forth. Is to acknowledge that we are both created in the image of God, and so we have um, an intractable starting point for knowing mm-hmm. and, and uh, relating and appealing to, uh, to our unbelieving friends and neighbors is very dignifying. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, I've, I think maybe, maybe uh, frame has used this, this language. I'm not sure where I got this, but it could be Van Til himself um, that like metaphysically we have, we have all things in common, even though epistemologically we, we have nothing in common if we don't both have the same, logical starting point of the ontological trinity does that, does that sound like a that's, fair that's assessment Ventil. that's ventil that's ventil okay. yeah okay okay yeah. yeah i love that well so that yeah. that brings us to to creation boswell said that uh ventil didn't believe in like the special creation of of adam and he had a he had some beef with his theological anthropology uh what, what do you make of that why, why did he have this misconception in the first place i guess yeah so uh this ties into um Buswell's notion, of course, that that Van Til was uh, was an idealist, mm-hmm. and um, you know he was all he was always very very concerned about pantheism and so forth. But his concern of of Van Til as an as an idealist uh, essentially led him to to believe that Van Til saw the the you know the created realm as merely something that existed in the mind of God mm-hmm. and uh, you know, reality was not something that for which Van Til could account. And because of that, it, it, uh, he, he also, and this is one of the other interesting things I bring out in the dissertation. And of course, this is something that's been, um, you know, of, of, uh, of real controversy over the last maybe 10 years or so. And that's the historicity of, of uh, of Adam as the first unique created um, man, he he held that uh, that Van Til thereby denied a historical Adam, mm-hmm. which is just utterly utterly absurd. And here's another one, you know, example of where Van Til would um, would bend over backwards trying to explain uh, himself to Buswell, and he did it beautifully. In fact, I use the things that he wrote to uh, to Buswell. As what I call part of my Ventil starter kit, which hmm. includes a night uh, includes the the two articles in the Bible today, presuppositionalism and presuppositionalism continued. Two other pieces that I put in my Ventil starter kit is the Nature and Scripture article from the Infallible Word, and then finally a March 1969 letter from Ventil to Francis Schaeffer. So I yeah. call that my Ventil starter kit. But those two articles, uh, presuppositionalism and presuppositionalism continued. Ventil attempted to give a robust accounting for what he meant and didn't mean by presupposition or presuppositional thinking. Um, he did the same thing with paradox. Here's what I mean. Here's what I don't mean by paradox. I'm not saying that I believe in contradiction. I, I'm saying I believe in mystery because of the creator creature distinction. And, and then with, with, uh, with creation. Um, so, so here's, here's a, I'm going to read a, a paragraph yeah. um, that, that, is going to be important for understanding why Buswell did what he did. Now, this is from Van Til. This is from Common Grace, uh, pages eight and nine. Uh, take me just about maybe a minute to read it. 
It appears then that a universal judgment about the nature of all existence is presupposed even in the description of the modern scientist. It appears further that this universal judgment negates the heart of the Christian theistic point of view. According to any consistently Christian position, God and God only has ultimate definitory power. God's description or plan of the fact makes the fact what it is. That kind of touches back on what we were talking about a little bit ago, brute fact and interpretation yeah. and so forth. What the modern scientist ascribes to the mind of man, Christianity ascribes to God. True, the Christian claims that God did not even need a formless stuff for the creation of facts, but this point does not nullify the contention that what the Christian ascribes to God, the modern scientist, even when engaged in mere description, virtually ascribes to man. Two creators, one real, the other would-be, stand in mortal combat against one another. The self-contained triune God of Christianity and the homo uh, noumenon, the autonomous man of Immanuel Kant, cannot both be ultimate. We conclude then that when both parties, the believer and the non-believer, are epistemologically self-conscious, that's a key phrase in Van Dill, mm-hmm. epistemological self-consciousness, when both are epistemologically self-conscious and as such engaged in the interpretive enterprise, they cannot be said to have any fact in common. On the other hand, it must be asserted they have every fact in common. Both deal with the same God and with the same universe created by God. Both are made in the image of God. In short, they have the metaphysical situation in common, <clears throat> metaphysically. Both parties have all things in common, while epistemologically, they have nothing in common. Christians and non-Christians have opposing philosophies of fact. So I read that as kind of a throwback to what you were saying there a second ago when you said, is this from Frame or Van Til? It's actually straight out of, you know, straight out of Compton. It's just straight out of common grace yeah. um, for, <laughs> for Van Til. So Van Til is addressing science that is conducted in an autonomous manner naturalistic, rationalistic assumptions, uh, assuming that there are brute facts up for grabs uh, that, that man can interpret from a, an autonomous uh, standpoint and so forth. So all that kind of lies behind uh, the way he's trying to interact with Kantian distinction between the noumenal and, and the phenomenal. Mm-hmm. So that as, as background. Um, Van Til holds the word ultimate as as how would I say this, applicable to the self-contained triune God of Christianity, not the autonomous um, Kantian autonomous human being. Only God is, is ultimate. So um, I'm going to read just a a quick little thing here. And I think this, this will help what Van Til meant by the word ultimate. Uh, where he says that the self-contained triune God of Christianity and the homo noumenon, the autonomous man of Immanuel Kant, cannot both be ultimate, has to be understood in light of the way in which he had just used the term ultimate four sentences earlier in the same paragraph when he spoke of God alone as having ultimate definitory power. In other words, by ultimate, Van Til is dealing with the issue of epistemological authority rather than, and underline this, ontological existence. Hmm. That Buswell found this ambiguous, again, must be attributable to, attributable to the way in which he conceived the function of his dualistic realism, which could only conceive of the noumenal phenomenal distinction in relation to real entity. Whatever the case, no one should accuse Buswell of being unwilling to follow his critique to its logical conclusion. Quote, I'm afraid Professor Van Til's doctrine of creation is a mere non-temporal mental act of God, which does not give ontological status to the thing created other than the thought of God himself. In one fell swoop, he dismisses the problem as a function of Van Til's latent idealism. Van Til defends his position, writing in the article Presuppositionalism, and I quote, a word may here be said about the relation of the ontological trinity to temporal creation. You assert the following, quote, the doctrine of paradox comes in its extreme expression in the words, we have in our doctrines the ontological trinity and temporal creation cut ourselves loose once and for all from correlativism between God and man. Then you criticize my rejection of correlativism as though in rejecting it, I were rejecting the idea of man's relatedness to and dependence upon God. Was there any need for giving my word such a construction? Even the sentence following upon the one you quote shows that I am arguing for the God of the Bible who is back of history, who has his plan for history against those who speak of a comprehensive reality which includes God and man in one whole. Mm-hmm. Does it follow that I reject the teaching which connects God necessarily with the world or makes him a principle within the world? This is why I think common grace and nature and scripture are such crucial texts to 
such crucial Ventilian material uh, to to read and, and to understand Ventil. Mm-hmm. In a nutshell, um, Buswell missed, it seems to me, that what Ventil was guarding against was Ventil was not suggesting that that man does not exist and that that the world is just an you know exists not in reality but only in the mind of God, but he was trying to establish man as covenantally accountable to mm-hmm. God and not autonomous. Yeah. Um, you know, Ventil uh, did did not suggest, as Buswell said that man does not, and I quote, hold an actual status. Right. He was trying to say that man does not, does not have definitory power. He is not autonomous and he is covenantally accountable. Yeah. Um, Buswell misconstrued all of that as, as to suggest that Van Til doesn't even believe that, that Adam was created. Yeah. Uh, that he had on that he had ontic existence. Yeah. And it's, Further reason why I titled my dissertation "The Fountainhead of Misunderstanding" because it was Buswell who called Van Til the fountainhead of presuppositionalism, and I don't mean to be disrespectful. Buswell was an earnest, godly, and learned man, but he simply was either incapable or unwilling to uh, to understand Van Til at all these points along the way that Van Til uh, was trying to explicate himself. Yeah, and I think that that distinction you made between ontology and um, epistemology is so important because he's he's talking about the definitory power, which may be a you know um, a unique Van Til word, but it, it makes sense. It, man cannot define himself. Uh, this, we're talking about epistemology over here, and so God defines man, and it doesn't mean man doesn't have any existence outside of the mind of God. It means that that man doesn't get to say, here's who I am. I'm, I'm autonomous. I'm born. And we know this from everything. We know this from psychology. We know we're not a, a tabula rasa. We know all sorts of things. We're born into a family, into a particular history. All these things external to us define us. Um, but, but like you were saying, the creator-creature distinction is under attack um, all over the place today, in at mm-hmm. least in Western society. And it's 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 a battle over the definitory power, as Van Til says, that I will define myself. I feel this yeah. way, or I want to do this or that. And it's an attack on on the creator. The creator has given you a place in history. He's given you a family. He's said who you are. And you say, well, no, I'm going to reinterpret reality, not according to the creator's thoughts. Exactly. Um, he uses the language of ultimate definitory mm. power. Mm. That's what Van Til speaks, that man assumes ultimate definitory power the the unbelieving scientist assumes ultimate definitory power of himself of his own existence of his place in the world of the world of the phenomenon around him of the explanations of of the facts around him and so ultimate definitory power is is an important um is an important you know concept for ventil and and this this will kind of give you an idea of of something that um, that Buswell found so confusing. It's a short little paragraph here by, by Van Til. Man's scientific procedure was accordingly to be marked off by the attitude of obedience to God. He was to realize that he would find death in nature everywhere if he manipulated it otherwise than as being the direct bearer of the behests of God. The mm-hmm. rational creature of God must naturally live by authority in all the activities of his personality. All these activities are inherently covenantal activities, either of obedience or disobedience. Man was created as an analog of God. His thinking, his willing, and his doing is therefore properly conceived as at every point analogical to the thinking, willing, and doing of God. It is only after refusing to be analogous to God that man can think of setting a contrast between the attitude of reason to one type of revelation and the attitude of faith to another type of revelation to the whole science faith thing mm-hmm. is because you know the, the the supposed bifurcation between science and faith or reason and faith is because man has assumed ultimate definitory power over over all of it and again it, it gets back to the creator creature distinction yeah. there's a reason why in all of the you know like you know one of, one of the most famous uh pictures of, of van Til is with him uh, the chalkboard behind him with the two circles and god is one and man is the other 
it, it wasn't simplistic, but there was a simplicity to it. That was functionally programmatically basic to everything for him as a creator creature distinction. And it was Buswell's misunderstanding of that, that led him to this and his hyper concern that Ventil, because he used idealistic terminology was an idealist uh, was somehow denying ontically real or ontic reality, ontically real created reality, Mm. uh, which is just absurd. And to say the least. Yeah. Well, Man, this is so good. I, 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 it reminds me how much I love uh, Van Til and how often uh, he's misconstrued. I, I'll say I will agree with everyone else that okay, sometimes he's hard to read. I don't think he's oh, that hard to read, but like Scott Scott Oliphant has all those notes. They're really helpful. Um, uh, a couple other professors from from Westminster. They're really super helpful. You can grab any book today, and they'll have all these really helpful notes for you. Okay, there's some there's some blame for Van Til. Um, but but other, it's it's confusing sometimes because I just to me it seems utterly Christian that of course God is the uh, ontolo- the ontological Trinity is the the starting point for everything of course of course uh, Scripture says this you know like of course the Bible would be the uh, principium uh, cognoscendi externum like of course that makes sense so it's always kind of frustrating but um, it's encouraging again to to hear about Van Til's. Um, doctrine of, of common ground, um, being grounded in the Imago Dei, that we can, we have the ontic reality, we have uh, the world as it mm-hmm. is. I live there and the unbeliever lives there. And though our epistemologies have nothing in common because I have God as the, the bedrock and they don't, we still both have to deal with the same ontology, the same reality. And we can use yeah. that to point them back and and get them to epistemological self-awareness, self-consciousness and say, Hey, look, your epistemology is not matching up with your metaphysics or your ontology. Yeah. Benjo called that removing the iron mask from Mm. the face of the unbeliever. So uh, while our epistemologies are different, uh, both the believer and the unbeliever are, um, uh, you know, operating according to inductive reasoning and scientific inquiry and deductive reasoning in math. They are assuming the laws of logic, you know, the law of non-contradiction, the law of the excluded middle, the law of non-falsification, et cetera. We're all assuming those things and operating according to them, but only one epistemic worldview can account for those things being what they are. Whereas any other worldview not only cannot account for those things, but actually mitigate against the very possibility of those things. So, for instance, a materialist worldview um, assumes inductive reasoning and the regularity of nature in order to, for, say, a materialist scientist to do his work. But his worldview not only cannot account for inductive reasoning and the normativity or the regularity of nature, actually, the idea of a random, of a, of of a worldview where all that exists is matter in random motion mitigates the ver- against the very possibility of inductive reasoning and regularity of nature. You could go straight down the line with all of these things, deductive reasoning and math, uh, objectivity and predication. Uh, one epistemology can account for objectivity and predication. The other depends upon objectivity and predication, but their worldview um, can't account for it and actually mitigates against words actually having meaning. And of course, I think post-enlightenment atheism kind of, you know, that that was massaged out with Wittgenstein and uh, Derrida and Rorty and, uh, you know, uh, Jean-Francois Léotard and Michel Foucault and others on as as it relates to language and actually having objectivity in in predication, words actually having meaning. Mm -hmm. So that's why Van Til would say, look, at the end of the day, um, this Christian Trinitarian worldview is the only worldview that will extricate one from that, from that constant vortex uh, that exists or that, that sort of ping ponging back and forth between rationalism and irrationalism. And we see every other worldview going one way or the other and the, the weaknesses of rationalism, the weaknesses of irrationalism, you know, the weaknesses of of a rationalistic kind of empiricism or logical empiricism are are easy enough to define the weaknesses of a, of some kind of, you know, irrational, you know, post postmodern, um, you know, standpoint epistemology is 
easy enough to to detect. But um, yeah, I think I think you know Van Van Til probably of everything that he found difficult with Buzzwell probably was Buzzwell's charge that he denied the historical Adam. Uh, you know, I uh, I have a section of my dissertation where I say Van Til proceeds to pelt Buzzwell with numerous examples from his writings where he clearly teaches the historical uh, Adam. And um, but but all of this flows from Buzzwell's painting of Van Til as an idealist and a uh, uh, one who believes in contradiction and uh, one who has bought into an idealist understanding of the concrete universal, um, basically identifying the one historical atom with mankind in general. And there wasn't an actual historical atom. And I think Van Til probably found it more frustrating than anything that Buswell simply couldn't see hmm. black and white where he clearly was teaching the Genesis account of creation, the, the reality of the individual historic man, Adam, et cetera. So I think give it, give it to Buswell. He, he, he held on like a bulldog in, in many ways and just refused to let go of some of his own presuppositions. If I can say it that way about, you know, he, he approached, <laughs> he approached Van Til with an interpretive grid that he never was willing to have it adjusted. Yeah. Um, and yeah. yeah, man. Well, that's so good. I, I love, I love your dissertation. I, I looked it over again this morning and just super good stuff. I, I think, I don't know if this is like scooping or anything. I think there is plans to, to turn this into a book. Is that right? Yeah, we're, we're talking about it. Uh, you know, I've got to get, get, on it and get some things uh, in place and pursue that. But, um, you know, Scott, my advisor, uh, Dr. Scott Oliphant, you know, has encouraged me toward that end. And so I need to, I need to do that. I think, you know, there may be eight or nine people in the world waiting with bated breath to read it. Yeah, that's right. Well, I'm, Ge- I'm one of them. Geeks, man. Like, geeks like you and me. You that's know? right. That's right. Yeah. Well, I'm excited for it. All right. Well, um, folks, that's going to have to do it for now. Lord willing, we can continue this conversation. Maybe we talk some Edwards, talk uh, idealism and Edwards it. or something. Some, oh, yeah. I got all my Edwards up here. I love got, that. I see the balloons. Edwards was really, see, this is a chocolate Edwards. Actually, it's not chocolate. It was like, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> yeah, it's a sculpture of Edwards. Edwards is really um, another one of my main areas of academic interest. And not just that, I don't know where I would be spiritually uh, yeah. apart from Edwards. I think for me, I think I may have said this in our last time we were together. You know, I always tell my seminary students, you need traveling partners. You know, ministry is hard. And uh, it was David Martin Lloyd-Jones who said that a, a pastor must have the heart of a child, the mind of a scholar, and the hide of a rhinoceros. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes, you know, ministry is, you know, can be really, really difficult and you need traveling partners. And for me, I, I honestly don't know where I would be without without C.S. Lewis and Jonathan Edwards and Cornelius Van Til. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I think I said this last time we were together. Uh, C.S. Lewis um, is an example of a man who makes me want to believe the Christian worldview. Mm. Uh, Jonathan Edwards is an example to me of a, of a man who did thoroughgoingly believe the Christian worldview. And Van Til is the one who gives me a justification for believing it. In yeah. fact, he's the one who gives me the justification of belief, period. He's the one who helps me account for the justification of justification yeah. um, in terms of epistemological uh, you know, basis for for proof, for evidence, for logic, for any of those things. And, and I think for folks who are willing to go through some of the difficult prose at places, it can be a little bit difficult to read. Um, what you will have in Ventil is an undeniable, absolute proof, not just for the concept of proof, but an absolute proof for um, the triune God of the Bible and the Bible of the triune God. Hmm. Because as he says, the absolute proof of Christianity is that apart from it, you can't prove anything. Right. Right. Man, I love it. Yeah. It's encouraging. I gotta get back and uh and get back into more Van Til, man. It's been it's been a couple months since I've read anything by him. So I'm gonna jump on that. Um Do folks, that, that that's gonna have to be it for now. Um, but Lord willing, we'll continue this. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.